0: Hey, everyone. My guest today is Nate Redier, uh, who is a PhD and CEO and founding owner of Next Element Consulting, which is a global leadership firm dedicated to bringing compassion into the workplace. Uh, Nate is also an author of three books, Beyond Drama, Transcending Energy Vampires, Conflict Without Casualties, A Field Guide for Leading and Compassion Accountability, and his latest book, Seeing People Through. Uh, Nate, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you, Asad. It's great to be here. Let's start with uh, the introduction to your most recent book, uh, Seeing People Through. You wrote a conversation with your wife where she asked you, hey, out of you know, you, you have a background in clinical psychology, out of everything you've learned, what's <laughs> influenced the most in your marriage and your parenting? And you said um, uh, PCM. So maybe you want to share a little bit more about a, what that acronym means. And, and why why you give that answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks. A little bit of background on me. I, I study clinical psychology. That's what my PhD is in. And so I learned all about human development, personality, all, all of that. And my wife was a, is a master's level social worker. So she studied human development, child development. And it wasn't after, until after I started practicing clinical psychology that I was introduced to the process communication model, which is the foundation of my third book. And I started using it in my clinical practice, using it in my leadership. And it was so helpful. And at that time, my wife and I had small, our children were, were just being born and growing up. And so we were applying everything we learned, you know, to, to child raising. And so, yeah, this one day we're sitting on our front porch and, and my wife asked me if you had to choose between everything you learned in your clinical degree or process communication model, you had to only pick one as your tool for life and for parenting, which one would you pick? And it wasn't even a question. I
0: would pick process
1: communication model, hands down.
0: All right. Uh, so you start, you start that book with a pretty like, I think uh, strong claim, right? So, uh, and, and I think, you know, some people listening might not be familiar with personality models at all. Um, and then, and and there might be some skepticism about, hey, can you actually put a personality into box? What in quotes, right? Um, yeah. And then I think there's some people who uh, actually. Why don't we start with this group first, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. Well, like, share a little bit more about how this model was created. Yeah. Um. And and like and even like the idea behind hey, putting personalities in, into sure. the models.
1: Well, let's start with, let's start with the problem with personality models in the first place. They're so prolific. They're everywhere. Everyone's heard of Myers Briggs, Strengths Finder, Disc, all of these. They're all over the place, and businesses are using them like crazy. So, what's the problem? Um, the problem with most models of personality is that they do try to put somebody in a box, they try to reduce our human experience and our behavior into convenient categories. Um, And then we label each other. We throw things around like I'm an ENTJ. Oh, you're a high D. Like somehow you know me because you can give me four letters. So I'm not blaming any model. It's just, that's a problem. And also the problem with a lot of models is they're based on some theory. They're not based on observation of behavior and they don't lead to any practical strategies for how we do it differently. I've gone to companies where they said, you know, how is PCM different from the last five models that we've used? And my question is, why are you using five models? And why did you go to the second one? <laughs> you know, how is this model coming alive in your, and show me where you're, where this is an active dynamic tool that you're using every day. And they, they can't. So what I like about process communication model is the first word process. It focuses not on the content of what we say, but the process of how we say it. I mean, Asud, have you ever experienced um, it's not what you say, but how you say it sometimes oh, yeah. <laughs> that is, you know, makes the most difference. So it's based on how we say things. Second of all, it's based on communication. So personality differences don't matter unless two or more people are trying to get something done. Yep. You can have any personality you want. If you're alone on a desert island, you could do it however you want. But as soon as someone else shows up, now, our personalities matter and it only matters in as much as we are communicating with each other. So communication, that is the currency of our lives. That is how we conduct relationships. So a good model of communication doesn't put people in boxes. It's based on behavior and it actually teaches us how to communicate with each other. So that's the foundation of process communication model. And I can share more if you want to, but that's kind of why I like it, why I chose it, why it's so
0: useful for me. And my second question was going to be around, like, you know, for people who are familiar with personality models, you know, it's like, what's different about this one? And, and I think sure. you gave a good answer to that. Um, you know, uh, your book actually has a really good sort of life in the day structure of like a few people and how they learn how to communicate. Uh, is is there, uh, uh, for folks this thing, can you give this like a high level overview of, of like, uh? the model, yeah. and, and, uh, and I'll have a few follow-up questions from there, I'm sure. Sure, sure. The, uh, this model was discovered by
1: Dr. Taby Kaler. He was a developmental psychologist, and he was very interested in how personality develops in children. And he observed hundreds and hundreds of hours of recorded videotapes of people interacting with each other, both in a good space and also in distress. And he started seeing patterns. And he put these into math, into computer, basically, and started looking for patterns and identified six mutually exclusive distinct clusters of behavior. And those became the foundations of the six personality types. What he went on to notice is that we all have all six of these in us. We all have all six in us, too, and they're arranged in a preferred set order. And that order is pretty much set very early in life. And you can distinctly identify where a person's coming from in their personality based on observing their behavior. So I can name the six types. The six types are the harmonizer, the thinker, the persister, the imaginer, the rebel, and the promoter. Each one of these types in us has specific ways in which they communicate. They have particular perceptual frames of reference. They're motivated in a specific way. They sabotage themselves in distress in particular ways. And it's all observable. It's all incredibly predictable. And it's so useful once we understand what to look for
0: in terms of how we communicate with people. Mm -hmm. What I also found interesting was you could actually, over the course of your life, change uh, the emphasis of which which part is more important to you. Yeah.
1: And that's another re- that's another way in which this model is different is that it, ac- it accounts for how we are the same because personality is stable throughout our lives. Um, if it wasn't, it would not be personality. So if you take a personality assessment and you do it again, five years later, and you get a different result, it's not measuring personality. Um, it's like measuring heart rate or blood pressure or something. Um, so it PCM shows how we're, how we're the same and stable throughout our lives, but it also shows how we change. And that's, that is um, captured in the concept called phase phase is a present tense word. I don't know if you've ever been visiting with someone They say, oh, you know, I'm going through a phase right now, or, oh, there was that phase. So phase is what you're going through now. And at any time in our lives, one one of those six personality types is uniquely important in terms of how it motivates us and how it drives us and how we kind of need our oxygen and get our battery charged. And that can change. And so this model accounts for how you stay the
0: same and also how you change. Yeah. This is a very interesting conversation because at the, at the beginning of the book, you, you, uh, you know, there's a person who's not motivated at the work, right. Which I think, especially for, the millennial generation is a big thing that comes up like oh like I don't feel like I have my purpose and part of your thesis is actually it's it might have something to do with your personality and the things that are motivating you in the day-to-day tasks Tell me if yes. I got it wrong.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And I, I didn't answer one question you had about how the book is built. So yes, this is a fable. It's a fable. Uh, and the main character is Kayla. She is a millennial and she's entering the workforce and finding her stride and experiencing all those things that people experience as they start to get into work and start to find their passion and start to experience motivating and demotivating environments and run into bosses and and all of that stuff. And so it's, it's an engaging story where she gets to learn about PCM, but through the lens of what that means for her as a human being, as an employee, as a leader. And um, so, so that, that's really important there, but it's really, like you said, it's really about what drives us, what motivates us and how we find the, the the niche, that place uh, where we can, where we can tap into that each day.
0: Something that, uh, that's interest. One, I guess, quote that was interesting for me was was your emphasis on the platinum rule as opposed to the golden rule. I think this gets into the communication yeah. part. Say a little yeah. bit more about that.
1: Well, the golden rule says treat others as you would want to be treated. We have. We use this from the day one, you know, in, in the, in, on the playground or in the, in the, um, the children are playing and someone takes another's toy and we go to that child and we say, well, how would you feel if somebody took your toy? Like we're trying to teach them empathy, but we're really teaching the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated. Well, what if you don't want to be treated like me? <laughs> and if we have six different personality types in us, and if one of them is primary and it, it it influences our motivational needs, wouldn't we want to aspire to a higher standard, which is treat others as they want to be treated? You know, that's, that's the principle behind diversity inclusion is don't think you know somebody, don't treat them just like you want to be treated. That's very self-centered and myopic. Really learn about how other people want to be treated and, and treat them in a way that will help them thrive um, and, and be energized in their own way.
0: And, and you had mentioned that you know, this, uh, this was a, you know, a pretty big, it had a pretty big impact on yourself when you were sort of learning a little bit more about yourself. Share more about your story. Yeah,
1: yeah. Thank you. I when I discovered or was introduced to PCM, I was several years into my professional career. I had had a couple leadership positions and. I learned that my strongest personality type of the six is promoter. Promoter is um, kind of naturally adaptable and charming and persuasive. We're kind of entrepreneurial, a lot of charisma. We love to be the center of attention, <laughs> and instantly I understood so much about my life. Like, oh no wonder. But what I also learned is that my personality type, this is only this this primary type is only I'm only share this with five percent of the population. And so I'm a bit of an enigma. No wonder I was a black horse in my family. Nobody, no wonder my parents had no idea what motivated me. No wonder I floundered trying to find my stride growing up. And so when I, when I realized that this is how I see the world and there's nothing wrong with it, it was the first time I was able to say I'm okay. And It's all about how I take care of myself and also realize I have five other types in me and I can access those types and I can use those to be a better leader, to be a better therapist, to be a better parent, to be a better um, partner to my spouse. And that was a huge impact to me to say, not only I could be more, but I really have a responsibility to live into my personality, to be able to serve the people around me. And I had been so self-focused before that and stuck in my one floor of my personality that tends to be very, you know, focused on, on me. And I realized that there's a lot more to me and I can really become a much better servant leader by accessing the rest of my personality.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds so, I think paradoxical because sometimes personality tests can have the effect of people becoming more self-absorbed, but it sounds like in your case, actually like opened you up. Um, if you're comfortable sharing, we'd love to hear like how, like, what changes you made in your work or personal life once you like had this yeah. insight about yourself.
1: Yeah, thank you. A one of the first things I did, I, I was a therapist, um, uh, 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 doing therapy every day, and one of the first things I did is I started to put myself in the shoes of my patients and say, if my patient had this personality type at very strong in them, if they saw the world this way, if they were motivated this way, then what do they need from me? Everything from the, the actual physical environment of my therapy room. Is it conducive to their most comfortable environment? How I talk to them? Is my style of communication really reaching them and meeting them where they are? Um, how are they motivated? If I'm trying to influence them to change behaviors, then I probably ought to know how they're motivated. And that's going to be a lot more important than me trying to use my own persuasive charm to get them to do anything. So that was huge for me is starting to change everything about how I did therapy to tailor it to the personality of my patient. Um, As a leader, simple things like how I conducted team meetings, a team meeting needed to have something in it for everyone. So we talk about with them in marketing, what's in it for me. I started asking myself what's in it for them and what aspect of our team meeting is going to naturally charge the batteries of each person in that room. And that changed the way we conducted staff meetings. It changed the way the agenda worked. Uh, those are just two examples of how I started
0: applying it practically. This ties really well with another quote I was going to ask you about, which is "communication occurs when there is an offer and response in the same channel." And just to you know, to make things a little more concrete for listeners, I, like some of the needs for some of those layers. For example, I think the imaginary requires solitude, the yeah. promoter requires contact. So, mm. how, so uh, maybe just take like the, a work meeting, how, how did yeah. you start to incorporate some of these things if you found individuals yeah. like that in, the, in, in, in
1: your work environment? Two great questions. You, you, you talked about the rule of communication, which is communication occurs if there is an offer and an acceptance in the same channel. I wanna table that real quick because that's really about how do we know that we're really communicating? Let's go back to the, how would I build in these different psychological needs? So, Let's uh, one of one of my um, one, the person that was in charge of events and marketing on our team, he his phase personality type was called Harmonizer. He thrived on personal relationships, knowing he was helping people. He loved that family feel of our staff meetings. And so we start every staff meeting with what we call diamond drops, which is everybody gets to notice and affirm something special from someone else on the team. Oh, he loved that. He was never late. so he got to be in his element but other there were two other people on my team thinker was their face type for them it's about they need time structure they need to know their work is being recognized and we're and we're using our time effectively so i would have an agenda and we would stick to that agenda and we would work systematically through through things and i would provide them with information in advance so they came prepared um another personality type on my team was uh uh rebel phase contact is what they need it's got to be upbeat lively and fun so we had plenty of jokes we moved around he could stand if he wanted to he was often late and that didn't matter as long as he if he was late he had to have a joke so it's so he didn't come late because he wanted to share his joke so so those are just some examples about how you can build this in Um, we work with a lot of teachers Imagine a teacher's challenge, a, a classroom of 20 to 30 students, all with different needs. And when teachers can build that into the natural flow of the classroom, there just aren't behavior problems because everybody gets what they need and they learn.
0: Something that came up for me when I was learning about this, and you, and you do talk about it in the book, and I think I'd love to flesh it out a little bit more is um, uh, initially I was like, hey, trying to adapt to someone else's communication style or needs feels a little inauthentic. yeah. And one example I had noted was, you know, uh, in, in the book, someone talks to Kayla, who's a harmonizer and says, I'm here for you if you ever want to talk. Right. And the thought in my mind was, what if I actually didn't feel that way? Right. What if I didn't feel like I was here for you? Like, would it be, you know, inauthentic, inauthentic to say something like that? Um, right. So flesh that out a little bit, because I think that's a really interesting
1: debate within the book. Great, great question. And that's probably one of the most common difficult things people experience as they're learning this model is they're being challenged with this this concept that if you want to meet people where you're at, you have to leave your comfort zone. And often what I say to people is don't confuse discomfort with inauthenticity. Just because you're not comfortable doing it, just because you're not used to it, just because you haven't mastered it yet, doesn't mean that you're not That your intentions aren't good and so if i know let's take kayla if i know kayla needs to hear this from me in order to to feel valued to feel included on the team but i don't know how to say it in a genuine way or maybe i'm not truly feeling it in my heart then that's about me that's not about her um i need to dig deep and say if i know that's what she needs then it is my job to learn how to say it and learn how to mean it um And so then people say, well, that's just not me. Okay, maybe I can say it in a most genuine way, but it's not me. It's like, well, I don't know what you mean by that because you have all six types in you. So it is you. That's like saying, um, that's like trying to go to the gym and do a new weightlifting routine and your muscles hurt. And you say, well, that's just not me. It's like, no, that is your muscle, dude. But it's just undeveloped right now because you haven't been using it much. So (laughs) uh, don't confuse discomfort with being um, inauthentic
0: what are some exercises you recommend for people to uh, maybe find a part of themselves that they aren't that familiar with in order to relate to someone else yeah great
1: question and in the book there's a chapter where kayla is actually given a homework assignment to do this and she learns about kind of the essence of these six personality types what they value how they see the world, and Her homework assignment, and this would be for anyone and your listeners, is um, go find someone in your life that you know or that you admire that is in the epitome of that type. And then come up with all the value that they bring to the world. Um, I may be able to say, you know, imagine her personality type is not developed strongly in me, but I know someone who is so imaginative and they're so reflective and they stay calm in any situation and they just have the most amazing ideas. And so by doing that, I'm starting to value and affirm that part in them, which then affirms it in me. And so once she finds someone else out there and values that part in them, she's starting to value that part in her. And um, we can't go into all the criteria of all six types, but the book gives it, and it's an easy homework assignment to do.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> there's a section where you talk about each each type has a need, and the provocative thesis there, I think, is you know, you have to have your own needs met before you can help others meet their needs. Uh, yeah. So share a little bit more about that. Yeah, that is
1: a that is a provocative concept. And we've heard this concept a thousand times if you've ever traveled. And it goes like this. In the event of a loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will fall from, from above. Put on your oxygen mask first before you attempt to help the person next to you. And the principle here is if you can't breathe, if you can't think clearly, if you're starved for oxygen, how can you possibly help someone else? You will just bring them down and cause chaos and trouble. So what PCM shows us is that our psychological needs, these are not nice to have. These are not um, luxuries. These are necessities for us to, these are built in cravings and hungers that must be met in order for us to function well. It's like oxygen. Um, and when we feed our needs in a positive, healthy way, we then have the energy to be able to help others. And we actually then have the agility to be able to access different parts of our condominium or our personality to help people. So, you know, you think about that, um, where I mentioned it's, it may be uncomfortable for me to talk to someone in their language or to adapt to someone else but I I can only do that if I'm energized. I can't go to the gym and work out my whole body unless I have energy, unless I've eaten. So it starts with us and it's not selfish. It's what we call being self full. You would never consider going on a long trip and without charging your phone first. You would never think about taking your laptop out unless you had charged it first. Same for our personalities. And can you share what the six needs are? Yeah, I will, I will. So uh, let's start at the top. Harmonizer, the most prevalent of all the personality types in the population. The harmonizer is motivated by recognition of person and sensory. What that means is they need to know you love and care about them and accept them for who they are as a human being, no strings attached. And the sensory part is a way in which we feed our needs. So the sensory world is a way that the harmonizer says, I matter as a human being, touch. Um, smells, tastes, um, comfortable environments. So one thing we could say to harmonize or phase person is say, I care about you as a person or you're a valuable part of our team or thank you for being here. Now, notice we're not commenting on their work. We're commenting on who they are as a human being. And when they know they are valued, they will exert so much energy to serve the team and to do all the work. But it's not about the work the um, thinker personality type, it is about the work for them. They want to be recognized for their productive work and their time structure. Productive work basically means, am I doing important stuff that gets the job done in the right amount of time? So at the end of the day, they only have one question to answer, which is, did I use my time productively? And so we can honor them by saying things like good job on that project, or wow, you found a way to increase efficiency so that we could get it done in less time. That's the kind of things that they live for, they get up for every day. The next personality type is the rebel. That's, uh, that's uh, the rebel is the strongest personality type in about 20% of the population, a lot more than you might think. They're, they thrive on contact, which just means being in contact, physical contact, you know, banter with people, Um, comedy, you know, having fun. So they would need things to be moving, lively and upbeat all the time. This was my daughter. And in school, she would come home and say, my butt hurts. I have to sit still all the time and I can't focus. And, you know, normally would say, oh, she has ADHD. But here's what she said. She said, all I want to do is they need to put a bar at the back of the classroom where I could stand. And then I could just shake my legs while I'm working and I could pay attention all day. And I wouldn't need to go to recess, which now they call refocus time. (laughs) Isn't that ironic? So they need to be moving figuratively or in in real. Mm. Um, The next is the imaginer. The imaginer personality type needs solitude. You mentioned that earlier. Solitude is not the same as isolation. Isolation means you've been forgotten. You've been left alone. You've been quarantined. But solitude means you can have your space. You, we don't have any, we're not going to try to micromanage you. You can have your space and we'll come get you if we need you. So this is really that alone time to be able to really recharge and, and imagine uh, new possibilities. And that takes us to the persister personality type. The persister needs to be recognized for their um, convicted, you know their convictions and their principled work. They don't work just to get work done. They work to advance their values and their commitments in the world. And so at the end of the day, they need to know, did I do what was most important and did I make a difference? That's what's important for them. And that honors their values and their convictions. And then finally, as the promoter, this was my face type for most of my life um, growing up, which is they need incidents. And incidents is just a lot of excitement in a short period of time. The thrill of the chase, you know, the competition, the challenges like can I pull it off. I played tennis in high school and it was the ultimate excitement for me because it was mono e mono. There's an ultimate winner and an ultimate loser and you either get all the credit or you get all the blame and there's no in between, and you can be the star. Um, So I accumulated trophies. as a way to feed my needs for incidents and excitement. So these six needs make the world go round. And at any point in our lives, one of those is primary and it deserves to be honored and fed in us in order for us to function well.
0: And I wanna emphasize that last point. What you're saying is these aren't nice to haves. These are must haves. These are like oxygen for the people yep. who, are, uh, who, who need these things. Yep,
1: yep, yep. I can get, can I share a personal example? Mm-hmm. We've been tracking this through COVID. It's been fascinating watching how the pandemic has impacted people's ability to get those needs met. So for me, when we shut down our office because of COVID, I still went to the office. Nobody was there, but I went because I need structure. I go at eight o'clock, I unlock the doors, I make the coffee, I do my thing and I need that time structure to feel productive. The only problem was because of COVID, I couldn't be productive. We're putting out fires, we're pivoting. And so I would come home at the end of the day and I could not answer the question, did I use my time productively? The answer was always no. And I was getting drained, 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 drained because I couldn't get my needs met. And so I had to get really creative and figure out other ways to feel productive and feel like my time was being used well. I couldn't change the fact that that's what charged my battery. I just had to get creative in how I did it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about COVID when I read this, because I would imagine someone who likes solitude, maybe this Mm. work from home is is a net plus, someone who likes contact is probably like, you know, it's a net negative for them. Oh, just
1: watch Zoom meetings. I said, just watch Zoom meetings. They're 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 horrible. And everybody is trying to get their needs met desperately. So the imaginer turns off the video because they don't want to be seen. The rebel is always putting on, you know, different hats and putting on visuals and liking everything everybody says, you know. <laughs> the harmonizer is trying to have conversations on the chat with their friends, you know. And so you can see everybody desperately trying to get their needs met if we just pay attention.
0: Yeah. And this does. Um, you know, perhaps overlap with uh, the other book I wanted to ask you about. But, you know, once you recognize your needs, how do you negotiate to have those needs met? Oh, good question. Good question.
1: You know, we, the first step is knowing what we need, and then developing um, good ways to do that. You know, we have to negotiate with the world to get our needs met, because I don't think we can expect that people know what we need. We can't expect that is just naturally going to happen. So knowing what we need first and then actively going after that. And sometimes that means asking for help. And very often, if we're in a team or in a family or in a community, we have to work with others to get our needs met. A great example is, um, you know, my wife uh, w- when we got married, she was motivated by recognition of person. So things like noticing when she got a haircut you know, how many guys don't notice when their girlfriends get a haircut or their wives get a haircut, you know, two days later they blow up. It's like, I can't believe you didn't notice my haircut or you didn't even ask about it. Right. And, or maybe you do something. And and so what we negotiated was it's okay to ask for what you want instead of expect it and then be resentful because you didn't get it. So I like to be recognized in my work. So if I get home early from work and I clean the kitchen so that we can have some downtime together when my wife gets home, if she doesn't notice it, I just say, hey, I cleaned the kitchen. What do you think? I just bring it to her attention because it matters to me. Um, and she might say, hey, I got a haircut today. Can I show you? So we don't wait for people to figure it out. We ask, we negotiate, and we realize that it's okay to do that.
0: There's a, there's a the flip side of needs is like when you don't get your needs met, uh, you have what you call distress behavior. Right. Um, so, a little bit more about that and how yeah. can one regulate uh, distress behavior?
1: One of the most powerful discoveries of PCM was that if human beings don't get those needs met in a positive way, we will go about getting those very same needs met negatively with or without awareness. So it's like clockwork, it is so predictable. And so what we like to say is behind all the negative attention is an unmet positive need. And so they're completely connected. In fact, the very first discovery of PCM was the negative distress. And the fact that that negative distress could be virtually reversed by simply offering the unmet positive need. And that's, that's pretty crazy and provocative because normally when we see negative behavior, we try to stop it. We try to control it. We try to, or else we say, oh, don't give it any attention. Cause if you give it attention, they'll keep doing more of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, it demands to be, it demands to be seen. So either we can get wrapped up in power struggles around the negative attention, or we can say, Hey, the tank's empty. What what kind of a battery charge do they need? That's the problem. Let's go get let's get them to the gas station as soon as possible. Let's get them to a charging station as soon as possible. Um, and that way, we treat the person, the human being behind the negative behavior. Can
0: you share an example? Because I think this is fascinating.
1: Yeah, a great example, and it's, it, you'll be surprised how obvious it is. So let's say harmonizer. They need to be recognized for who they are as a human being. When they're in distress, they reject themselves as a human being by making mistakes. By forgetting important things, by inviting criticism, by second-guessing themselves, um, or that thinker—this is my phase right now. When I'm not feeling productive, that I'm not getting enough done in a good amount of time, then I start to criticize everyone else for being lazy and stupid and wasting my time. So I come home from work and I have not felt productive, and I come in the house and I say, "How come the kitchen's a mess? Don't you know you're supposed—that's on your list of jobs?" It's like. Now I'm accusing everyone else for being stupid and lazy, but it's not about them at all. It's about what I do negatively to get those own needs met positively. Um, and one more example is the persister. They want to be recognized for their conviction and for their principled work. But when they don't feel that, then they start criticizing everyone else for not, having, not believing right. They push their beliefs. They get opinionated, self-righteous,
0: judgmental. It's not about everyone else. It's about them. And in that case, it's... Ideally, the person recognizes it and then tries to get their needs met, or if there's a leader who recognizes it and helps them get their get their needs
1: met. Oh, uh, ideally, what we call it is, is deal with the person behind the mask. We wear masks and we're in distress, and, we, and the mask is all this icky behavior, but the person behind the mask desperately needs those positive needs. So when someone, when persister phase is pushing their beliefs on me and telling me I don't believe right and I should care more... Um, I could get sucked into that, which would go nowhere. Or I could say, I can tell how much you care. Thank you for being so committed to this
0: cause. I want to to shift gears here and uh, talk about um, conflict without casualties. And let's start with something you mentioned in the book, which is the drama triangle. Mm. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the drama triangle can you just give a summary yeah. real quick, real quick. And uh, my first book actually uh,
1: beyond drama is all about this. If you're interested um, and the drama triangle is a way of understanding how we misbehave <laughs> when we're in distress. And this was invented. This was discovered by Dr. Stephen Cartman in the seventies. It's been around forever, but it's so elegant and it's a triangle and it identifies Three roles that people play when they're in distress, and a role is not who we are, it's just our behavior. And the, the one role is the role of the persecutor. Some people in distress go on the attack as if they're fine, everybody else is the problem. Some people play the victim role and assume it's all them, and so they're not okay, everybody else is fine. But then there's the third role, which is the role of the rescuer. And the rescuer goes, goes about trying to fix everyone else's problems. They appoint themselves the savior. Like, um, hey, I know what's best for you. And so when you think about this, these three roles, basically, one says, you're the problem. The other one says, I am the problem. And the third one says, hey, I'm the solution. And so those get to going and it's crazy. You can see it in families, in, around a boardroom table. You can see it in entire companies. You can see it in how politicians deal with each other, how entire countries deal with each other. So it's a pretty elegant model of understanding how we get sideways with each other in distress.
0: And elaborate
1: on more uh, on why it's an unhealthy uh, yeah. cycle. Here's what drama is. So here's our definition of drama. Drama is what happens when we misuse the energy of conflict. That's the first step. Conflict is natural. It's normal. It's fine. It generates a lot of energy. So the real question is, what are we going to do with it? So drama is when we misuse it. It's kind of like electricity. You can power your house or you can electrocute someone. So it's the misuse of conflict energy. The second part of the definition is, what are we using the energy for? It's to struggle against ourselves or each other. So drama is always adversarial. It always has the goal to either win or lose. Think about those three roles. The persecutor wants to to win and defeat you. The victim wants to lose and be defeated. And the rescuer wants to know that nobody could live without them. So it's all about win-lose. So why do we do this? It's because we want to feel justified. And justification is kind of the most basic human glitch. (laughs) Think about it. Everyone wants to feel justified at the end of the day. You know, you want to be able to say, see, I was right. And as soon as you're trying to say, see, you're already in drama because now you're pursuing justification, which takes you away from anything productive. So drama is a misuse of conflict energy to struggle against ourselves or each other to feel justified. What do we want to feel justified about? Well, about our negative behavior. None of those drama roles are healthy. This hurts people. Nobody wants to be treated as if they're less than. Nobody wants you to come in and save the day as if they're incompetent. So this is how we sleep at night is we try to justify these negative behaviors and make these excuses and these rationalizations for why it's okay. That's drama.
0: I wanna go back to something you said, um, which is uh, you said conflict is natural and Mm when I was younger, I grew up in this whole like world peace, you know, peace is the most important thing. And, um, the idea of conflict actually being healthy, uh, I think might challenge a lot of people. So, uh, say more about why you think conflict is, is when yeah. oh, use well as a good thing. Yeah.
1: Well, I grew up the same way. I had the same message. I, I grew up in a, pacifist, nonviolent, um, religious background community. You always turn the other cheek. You never resort to violence. You is it's like peace is. I came to, I came to believe that peace was the absence of conflict because conflict always creates look, what happens when there's conflict. So we just won't do that. But what I also saw growing up was was that you can be pretty violent to someone without ever touching them without ever raising your voice. You can withhold information. You can be passive aggressive. You can have tone. You can invite someone to feel guilty. There's all these things we do to abuse each other in drama, and it's peaceful. So, I was I was uncomfortable with this, and then um, I met a, a man by the name of uh, Michael Mead, and he he's a wonderful guy that understands conflict so well. And he said, you know, the purpose of conflict is to create. I was like, what are you talking about? All I've ever seen is that it destroys. And he goes, I know, but that's, we don't have to choose that option. So here's, here's what I realized is I've, I've grown up around the world. I lived in Africa a lot. Um, I was in South Africa during apartheid when Nelson Mandela was in prison, I've seen a lot of stuff. And what I realized is diversity by its very nature is, is amazing and awesome. But here's the thing. Diversity is the mother of all conflict.
0: No, very fashionable to say these
1: days. I mean, not very fashionable, but diversity is the mother of all conflict. So if diversity is good and it's beautiful and it's meant to be, then conflict must also be. The real question then is, what are we going to do with that energy? And so my life mission became to figure out how to use the energy of conflict productively instead of negatively. Um, And that's where we came across compassion. Compassion, you know, humans have this glitch that we want to be justified. But we also have this beautiful thing called compassion, which is the ability to struggle with people and use that energy of conflict to create instead of destroy. I really believe that's its purpose. And so we conflict
0: without casualties is really all about how to do that. And you talk about something called the compassion cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk a little bit about that and the three phases of open, resourceful and persistent.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, human beings. Um, there are there are three aspects to our existence. There's the affective and emotional space. We are we are emotional beings. There's the cognitive part. We also are thinkers. Um, we can think, we can organize, we can problem solve. And then there's also the behavioral component, is that we do things. So we feel, we think, and we do. And that is really kind of these three aspects of human existence. So how do we honor each one of those? Openness. On the compassion cycle is where we honor that we are emotional beings and that we need to create a safe place to be with each other in our raw humanity resourcefulness is honors the thinker in us that we can solve problems we can come together and work together to figure these things out and leverage our gifts and persistence acknowledges the behavioral component that we are because we live in communities and depend on each other, how we act matters. How we act matters and we have to have behavioral principles for how we are with each other and make commitments and adhere to, to standards. But here's the problem. In the arc of human civilization, what always happens is we start it open and we, we're all vulnerable and we, we get together, we care about each other. Then we go to resourceful, we figure out you know, how to live off the land and we figure out tools and we build civilizations. We go to persistence and we start to enforce the status quo and have all these, these things we wanna have. And then it stops. And then we try to protect everything. We fight anybody that gets in the way. We start to think that diversity is a threat um, and the difference gets in the way of the status quo and we, and we go to persecutor. And we either die or we kill each other or we fail to adapt and, get, and and get rendered extinct. So what I realized is at that moment, the problem is we need to go back to open. And that's why it's a cycle. Open, resourceful, persistent, open. And so my big concern and also hope is right now in our civilization and in many companies and in our country, we're at the precipice of, are we gonna continue to persecute or are we gonna go back to open and start listening to each other and start realizing that diversity and conflict are where it's all gonna, that's where we're gonna solve everything.
0: And how is the compassion cycle an antidote to the drama triangle?
1: Yeah, thank you. Each one of those three skills open, resourceful, persistent are the antidote to the drama thing. So victim says, I'm not okay. And so my needs don't matter. My feelings don't matter. Open says, all of our feelings matter. And I'm just as important as you. And you're just as important as me. Rescuing says, here, I know what's best for you. I got, I got the solution. Resourcefulness says, we have the solution. And together we can figure this out. And you, you don't need to contribute more than me or less than me. We contribute together. Persecutor says, I'm the smartest, I believe right, I'm the funnest and you're not. And and persistence says, we're all accountable for our behavior and our behavior matters and we respect each other in community. So that's how each one of those is kind of the antidote to the drama.
0: And your recommendation is in conflict, uh, say two individuals are in conflict, you actually move through the cycle mm-hmm. Uh, of open resourceful persistent, What are some obstacles people encounter when moving from one stage to another?
1: Yeah, great question. And we've tried to, we've tried to make it very practical. If, if the compassion cycle honors all aspects of our existence and if, if each one is important, how do we actually talk to each other in a way that leverages all three of those skills? And we have, a, we have a formula that we teach to do that. Here's where people encounter obstacles is not all of us are equally proficient in each of those three skills and we have an assessment to measure this and what we find is some people maybe are really good at being persistent. They're finishers. They always adhere to the standards, but they're terrible at being open. They don't know how to listen to anyone's feelings. They don't seem to care. They barge ahead and create an unsafe emotional environment, Um, or maybe someone's really open, but they're not resourceful and they can't problem solve and they don't, they don't, they're not willing to try new things or they're scared of failure. So, People encounter obstacles where they just haven't embraced and developed that component of the compassion cycle. And once they do, they can start moving freely and using that energy to be able to turn conflict into something creative.
0: You said that this cycle, both the uh, and, and and the drama triangle happens both on an individual level, so it could be me and my coworker, mm-hmm. uh, in a more macro macro level, so it could be. Uh, two cities or two countries uh, mm-hmm. enacting this out, and then you've also mentioned uh, maybe historically, civilization, these are just cycles that we go yeah, through yeah. that, that uh, inform success or failure. Um, and I'm curious, you know, you know I, I would say Western civilization is built on Judeo-Christianity. Uh, how, how, what's the relationship between G- Judeo-Christianity and the Drama Triangle? Oh, you did not
1: just ask this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question. It's a great question, and I, I come from a Judeo Christian background. I live in a community and culture. This is pretty much we're very monolithic this way, so I'm pretty familiar with this. And um, and my parents were missionaries. So so here's here's what what has been brought to my attention and and by some other people that have studied this model, is the three roles on the drama triangle represent interestingly parallel the three basic Um, theologies of salvation in in Judeo-Christianity. So let's look at it this way. The victim represents the theology of Christ as victim. Took our sins, did all the suffering for us. He suffered so we don't have to. That's a victim role. And there's there's whole denominations and whole, whole like growths of Christianity completely based on that that theology of salvation in fact denominations generally are built around one of these another one is christ as rescuer meaning christ showed us how if you just read the scriptures and just do what he did you'll be fine so jesus was the role model for all of us kind of like in a workplace we come in and say let me show you how this is done you know um, so Christ as rescuer and if you think about denominations or or theologies, this is really where the message always is here's what you need to do. here's the right way and and I got I got the advice for you but then there's the third one which is God as persecutor. These are the theologies of salvation where you better be scared because if you don't do what you're supposed to do you're gonna you're gonna burn in hell and you can see the um, if you go just go down the highway, these are the most common billboards is, Is Christ as or God as judge and God as persecutor? Is they're trying to scare us into believing because if we don't, something terrible is going to happen later. So these are the three basic theologies of salvation, and I think it's really ironic they match the three drama roles, which are how humans misbehave. So I almost sometimes I wonder, I don't know if I'm going to get, be called a heretic for this, but is it possible that all of these theologies are just man-made anyways to match our own distress and to help us feel justified about the way we misbehave when we're in each other and in
0: power? I also imagine like, people who fall into one of these roles uh, find the equivalent theology more comfortable
1: yeah, it very is. If I'm, if I'm preaching hellfire and you should be scared, then I'm probably attracting victims to come to my congregation because they they know that they're wrong. They're terrible. They're horrible. And I'm going to save them. I'm going to fix them. Um, so it's kind of like we, we, we see, we see groups made up of like persecutors looking for victims and victims looking for persecutors to help them remind them how worthless they are. Um, or yeah,
0: it's, it and, fits. Yeah. And I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Nietzsche, the philosopher, but, but he, he had this critique of Christianity, I guess, because he said Judaism was incubated when uh, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. So he had, I think, a reflection on uh, uh, like a religion being Founded by quote unquote victims, right? So, both on right. the side of like this notion of equality is something that um, uh, like an oppressed class would like ask for, right? Mm-hmm. And it's become like this foundational sort of principle of the modern world as like, you know, yeah. proposing the notion that we're not equal is, is, is you know, right. so crazy now, right? Yeah.
1: I, I'm with you. I, you know, I think that s- spirituality is more about how human beings experience and interact with something that's bigger than themselves with the divine, but religion is man-made. Religion is the way in which we wanna create structures and systems, and very often those just mirror our own distress, our own personality, our own way of seeing the world that we wanna perpetuate. So I'm with you, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with Nietzsche's uh, perspective. Cool. I
0: have one final question. Um, I've, you know, as I was reading um, Conflict Without Casualties, one of the things that I thought of was you know, a lot of um, political movements, marketing campaigns, drama companies, mm-hmm. the thing that allows for their success is attention, right? So if you can bring attention to a certain cause to your company, you know, yeah. you'll get more customers yeah. or more advocates. And in a sense, when you watch a really good Netflix show, the more dramatic it is, the more likely you are to keep watching it. Right, right. So my question for you is, is there a situation where you would advocate for the rules of the drama tracker to be inverted to actually draw attention to a particular cause or issue? Well,
1: drama definitely sells. And these three roles of the drama triangle make up, make up the best plots, right? The yeah. best storylines. But let's take it, let, let's uh, maybe, maybe some invert, let's, talk, let's transcend and include. Let's take an example of a fabulous movie, the movie Brave from Pixar Animation Studios. An amazing movie, animated movie, it won the Academy Award. And it's, this, it's the age old story of the rebel personality type child and the persister personality type parent. The rebel wants freedom. The rebel thinks they know everything. The rebel, rebel is always challenging authority. And the persister is all about maintaining the status quo and trying to protect and make sure that that child never gets hurt and always does the right thing and brings honor to the family. So. What we're seeing juxtaposed is if is, is in, in, interestingly, that movie was made using PCM as its framework. Um, they have internal PCM trainers at Pixar. So it shows us both the best and the worst of what it means to be human. So when they're in distress, they're in the drama triangle and it's all the juicy stuff we love to see because we can relate. We can say, oh my God, my daughter is the same way. But also when they learn and grow and they transcend the dark side, they start to show you what humanity can be. And that's when we start to see that all six personality types have this wonderful, amazing thing to offer. So I think there's a mix of, we have to show the drama to see what it to relate, but then we also have to show the other side to know what we're aspiring for and what's possible in humanity. Uh,
0: well, this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Where can people learn a little bit more about your work?
1: Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed this too. Great questions. And, th- and, and um, I, I've been really intrigued and inspired by what you lifted out, what, what was interesting to you about about the book. Thank you. If people want to reach us, next-element.com is our website. Everything is there. You can learn about my books. You can learn about the work that we're doing to bring more compassion to every workplace. Uh, Soon you'll be able to learn about a new free uh, compassion course that we're giving away to the world, um, an app-based micro course. And so we're just very excited about doing that. But next-element.com.